Well, last week we began our Advent series in Isaiah by looking at the very first chapter and what it says about mankind's need for the Messiah. We saw in Isaiah's indictment of Israel, specifically of the southern kingdom of Judah, a microcosm, a a small-scale model of the Lord's indictment of all humanity. Just as Israel broke covenant with God, so have we too turned our backs on our Creator. Just as Israel in their hypocritical worship treated God like a pagan deity, mindlessly keeping all of the prescribed rituals of the temple, all the while living in repentant sin, so have we too attempted to buy God off, as it were, with our religious works, all the while continuing to live these autonomous, self-ruled, self-glorifying lives. Just as Israelite society had degenerated into a place where they were indistinct from the Gentile nations that surrounded them, so has all human society degenerated into a cesspool of immorality and greed and violence and all manner of wickedness and filth. And because of this, the judgment of God is coming upon the world just as it came upon Israel. God will avenge himself of his enemies. In his wrath, he will destroy those who are against him. Nevertheless, we found that he will save a remnant. He will purify them. He will cleanse them. He will redeem them. And he will establish them as an everlasting city under the rule of his everlasting king. And so the offer of pardon goes out to all men today just as it went out to the people of Judah so many years ago. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you'll only repent, you will be redeemed. But it's at that very point that our need for a Messiah became clear. Because, we saw last week, sinners can't repent. They cannot simply decide to suddenly hate what they love and love what they hate. Their hearts must be changed. They must be born again. Neither, we saw, can sinners atone for their own sin. They cannot pay off their own debt, which they owe to the justice of God. Why? Because a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The only thing a sinner can produce is more sin. Sinners need to be justified by a righteousness that is not their own and by an atonement that they cannot provide. In other words, Isaiah 1 makes clear that salvation must come From outside of us, we need a Messiah. Now I begin with this brief review of last week's message because this week's text functions in much the same way. 
Once again, in Isaiah 7, we find Israel, or specifically Judah, functioning as a small-scale model for all of humanity. Once again, we find in God's promise to Judah, a promise given to all mankind. And once again, we will find that just as Judah's salvation depended upon faith in that promise, so does our salvation depend upon the very same faith in the very same promise. The main point of Isaiah 7 is found at the end of verse 9, where Isaiah says to King Ahaz of Judah, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Or as the Christian Standard Bible renders it, if you will not stand firm in the faith, you won't stand at all. Above all else, we find in Isaiah 7, God wants to be believed. He wants to be trusted. He wants to be relied upon. He wants to be believed and trusted in as our all-sufficient Savior. Because that magnifies and exalts His all-sufficiency. It brings Him glory when you trust Him. So whether or not we stand in the day of judgment depends entirely Upon such faith. So my prayer for First Baptist Nix is that we would be among those who stand. I mentioned last week that the book of Isaiah is not arranged chronologically. It doesn't go in order from the beginning of Isaiah's ministry to the end of Isaiah's ministry. It's arranged thematically. While Isaiah 1 appeared to be situated near the end of Isaiah's ministry just prior to his death. What we have here in Isaiah 7 is set against the backdrop of events that occurred very early in Isaiah's ministry. So we read in verses 1 and 2, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. It was the largest tribe, and so Isaiah will very often refer to the northern kingdom of Israel by their largest tribe, namely Ephraim. Syria is in league with Ephraim, with Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. The date of this prophecy is sometime around 735 BC. It's about three years before the destruction of Damascus, the capital city of Syria, or your Bibles may have Aram. And it's about 13 years before the destruction of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the specific reason why the king of Syria and the king of Israel are are allied with one another and want to attack the southern kingdom of Judah is uncertain. But it seems that they want Judah to join a, a coalition against the real rising power of the region. That is the Assyrian Empire off to the north and east and its king, tiglath Pileser III. When Ahaz refused... Rezin of Syria and Pekah of Israel decided to march their armies south 
in order to depose Ahaz and to install their own puppet king on the throne of Jerusalem, a king who would join their alliance and would do what they wished. A man who we find out in verse 6 is named Ben-Tabil. Verse 2 says something about the spiritual state of Ahaz and of the people of Judah. When they were told that Syria and Israel had joined forces to invade their kingdom, it says the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, they were absolutely terrified. Now, on the one hand, that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, how else are they supposed to respond when they see a a vastly superior army amassing just across the border? But Judah had something that none of the other nations of the region had, namely a promise from God that a son of David would reign forever upon the throne of God's people, 2 Samuel 7. But Ahaz didn't believe this and neither did his people. They didn't live as the covenant people of God. That is, they did not live as people of faith, believing, as Paul says, that if God is for us, who can be against us? They didn't believe that. Ahaz's refusal to join the Syro-Ephraimite coalition was not an act of faith. It's not as if Ahaz said, no, I'm not going to join your godless alliance. That would have been cool if you had, but you didn't. It was an act of fear. Ahaz did not fear God. He feared the king of Assyria. And this is what happens when men fear man rather than God. You find yourself like Ahaz, caught between a rock and a hard place. He feared Assyria, so he refused to join the Syro-Ephraimite alliance against them. But it turns out that Ahaz feared the alliance as well. See, when you live by what you can see, when you live by sight, according to human strength, you're destined to spend more than your fair share of time shaking as trees do in the wind. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. What would the history of Israel have been like if Ahaz had been a righteous man who lived by faith and was therefore as bold as a lion? Furthermore, what would your life be like if you lived by faith? And you were bold as a lion. At any rate, God sent Isaiah to confront Ahaz because of his quaking and his scheming. And to call him to faith in the God of Israel. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, the location of this meeting is unknown, but it's likely just outside the city walls. And evidently, Ahaz is out checking the city's water supply in preparation for a siege of Jerusalem that he knows is coming. In other words, if you're going to be holed up inside the walls of a city, you'd better make sure that your water supply is safe, that it's well fortified. It's not entirely clear why the Lord instructed Isaiah to take his son But I think it must be that he intended this boy, whose name means, we find out in Isaiah 6, 
only a remnant shall return. In other words, all of Israel will be destroyed and exiled, and only a remnant shall return. This boy stood as a sign of judgment. And I think God tells Isaiah, take your son, the one whose name is a sign of Israel's judgment, take him with you as an object lesson to Ahaz, a visual warning, if you will. Because this boy, Shear Jashub, he was a living, breathing reminder of Israel's unbelief and of her future destruction, and also of the future salvation of that remnant of God's people. Verse 4, And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So the Lord's message to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah begins with these four imperatives. Be careful, or calm down. Be quiet. Do not fear. Let not your heart be faint. It's quite a way to start. It's quite a way for a prophet to speak to a king. Ahaz, calm down and be quiet. Stop being fearful. Stop being a coward. It's sometimes hard to read tone of voice into scripture. But I think Isaiah's tone in verse 4 is one of irritation and frustration. His patience with Ahaz is wearing thin. And so was the Lord's. Do you remember God's dealings with Moses at the burning bush when Moses was throwing up all these excuses as to why he couldn't be the Lord's mouthpiece? Do you remember Jesus' response to the disciples when they were terrified by the storm on the Sea of Galilee? The Lord is not amused by fear. Because fear is the antithesis of faith. And God desires above all else to be trusted. And terror is the opposite of trust. God's not okay with our fear because he wants our faith. The reason Ahaz should not fear is because in the eyes of the Lord, the fierce anger of the kings of Syria and Ephraim amount to nothing more than smoldering stumps of firebrands. In other words, those, those burned out ends of logs that remain at the, at the edge of an old campfire. That's how powerless they were against the might of the God of Israel. Their evil designs will not stand. They will not come to pass. In fact, he says, within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, would cease to exist as a people. There'll be no more. Why 65 years? I don't know, but maybe it's roughly the span of a man's lifetime. Regardless, the prophecy was 
fulfilled by 670 BC, 65 years later, not only has the kingdom of Israel been destroyed and dismantled in 722 BC, but the 10 tribes of Israel that comprise that northern kingdom have been systematically deported throughout the Assyrian Empire. Other ethnic groups have been imported in such that the genetic heritage that the people were, were the genetic heritage of the people had been so diluted that they were essentially unrecognizable as descendants of Abraham. And they became the descendants or the origin of the ancestors, rather, of the Samaritans of the New Testament. They were half-breeds. They ceased to exist as ethnic Israelites. Verse 9 then ends with a strong call to faith. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Or again, as the Christian standard renders it, if you will not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. So Isaiah tells Ahaz, quit looking across the border and and counting their armies. Stop looking east to Assyria and fearing the strength of their king. All you need to do is trust the Lord and rest in his promise. But as we'll see, that is the one thing that Ahaz cannot and will not do. Now, there appears to be a a break between verses 9 and 10, such that this this is a separate meeting of Isaiah and Ahaz. Evidently, Isaiah's first attempt to call Ahaz to faith was unsuccessful, so the Lord sent him again. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now Ahaz is still a relatively young man. He's in his early 20s. And maybe that's why the Lord goes to such extraordinary lengths to secure his faith. Or maybe it's just a kindness to his father David. Or whatever the reason, it really is an astounding offer I mean, the way that the offer is phrased points to some kind of miracle of nature. Ask me to do something. Ask me to show off in some way, and I will show you that I am able to save you from from Israel and Syria. I am able to deliver you from the Assyrian Empire. Just ask of me. God could cause the sun to stand still. Or, or even retreat in the sky as he had done in the days of Hezekiah or in the days of Joshua. If that would secure Ahaz's faith. God would alter the gravitational rotation of heavenly bodies. If that would bring faith to Ahaz. And you can't help but think of Jesus' statement In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that they won't believe even if a man rises from the dead. The Lord hands Ahaz a blank check. He can cash it for any amount he likes. But astonishingly, Ahaz refuses. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. This is is what we would call false humility. Humility. Ahaz references Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But he misinterprets the text. 
If he'd have just kept reading down verse 16, he would have seen that it is disobedience and unbelief that tests the Lord and dares him to act. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You want to know what puts the Lord to the test? Unbelief. This is not humility. This is unbelief cloaked in hypocrisy. And God is not impressed. Isaiah responds, Hear then, O house of David. I love this. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So since Ahaz will not ask for a sign, the Lord himself decides he's going to give him a sign. Now I want to note four points about this sign that the Lord gives. The sign of Emmanuel. First, the sign is the virgin birth of a son. Now, how are we to understand this virgin birth? Well, this prophecy, as so many prophecies of the Old Testament, has two fulfillments. It has a near typological fulfillment in Isaiah's immediate future, in, the, in Isaiah's present, and it has a, a, a distant ultimate fulfillment in Isaiah's distant future. The ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, as we know, as we'll see in a moment, is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was a true virgin conception. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and announced the birth of Christ, Mary's first question was, uh, how? How will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, since I do not know a man. And Gabriel's answer was telling. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. I submit to you that Jesus' birth was unique in all of human history. It was a truly virgin conception. I don't think that is what Isaiah is prophesying in the immediate fulfillment. In other words, I don't think there are two virgin births in history. One in Isaiah's day and one in Jesus' day. The word translated virgin, it's the Hebrew word alma, does not necessarily imply literal virginity. It simply refers to a young woman who is not yet a mother, what we might call a maiden. One commentator put it this way, a woman ceases to be an alma, a virgin, when she becomes a mother, not when she becomes a wife or a sexual partner. Furthermore, it seems that Isaiah is speaking of a particular young maiden. He doesn't say a virgin, he says the virgin, as if he's pointing at someone, someone known 
to Ahaz. In this case, he would be saying that a particular young unmarried woman known to the king, maybe a relative, maybe one of his royal court, will soon marry, will conceive a child in the natural way, and she'll call the child Emmanuel. In short, while the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is the real, true, authentic, virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Emmanuel, I think the immediate typological fulfillment in Isaiah's day, in Ahaz's day, merely refers to a young woman who will soon be married, will conceive a child, and that child, as it grows, will act as a sign to Ahaz and to the kingdom of Judah. How? That's the second point. The boy will be a living, breathing sign to Judah and to Ahaz that God is with them in this time of crisis. What he says concerning Ephraim and Syria will come to pass. Those kingdoms will be destroyed. Why? Because God is with them. How do they know? Because he told them this boy will be born, and he was born, and all Ahaz has to do is look at this boy and know God is with us. Third, the boy's age will function as a kind of calendar or time frame for the prophecy. Now, we'll return to the curds and honey reference when we get to verse 22, but now just focus upon the time frame that Isaiah gives. By the time the boy has the moral judgment necessary to choose right from wrong, okay, anywhere between the ages of 5 and 12 have been suggested, Ephraim and Syria will cease to exist. Now, again, we find historically that time frame worked out perfectly. Syria was destroyed by the Assyrians in three years' time and Israel in 13 years' time. Finally, notice that the boy will function as a double sign, a sign of salvation and of judgment. He will be a sign of salvation in that God will preserve Judah from utter destruction at the hands of the Syro-Ephraimite alliance. God will preserve the house of David from being overthrown and having a usurper set upon the throne. But he will also, this child will also be a sign of judgment in that because Ahaz and the people did not trust in the Lord their God, God would punish them severely. First in the bloody battles with the Syro-Ephraimite alliance and ultimately at the hands of the king of Assyria. If we look at 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, we can learn the rest of the story. We can find out what happened. As a result of the unbelief of Ahaz and the people of Judah, God brought Syria and, and Ephraim against them with devastating results. The invading armies killed 120,000 soldiers of Judah, took captive 200,000 women and children, and absolutely plundered the land. But Jerusalem was not conquered. Interestingly, when the Israelites marched their captives that they had taken from Judah back to Samaria, a prophet of the Lord met them and told them that it was only because God was angry with Judah that he had brought this great slaughter upon them. But he would not allow Israel to enslave their brothers and sisters, the captives of Judah. And so when they were threatened with the burning anger of the Lord, the people of Israel clothed and fed and bandaged the captives of Judah and returned them 
to Jericho. And in the end, God did deliver Ahaz from the Syro-Ephraimite coalition, but it came at at an extraordinarily heavy price. The land and the people were decimated. Now, the remainder of chapter 7 describes that devastation wrought upon Judah at the hand of the Assyrians. And you may be asking, why? Why why does Isaiah prophesy Judah's defeat at the hands of the Assyrians? Wasn't the immediate threat the Syrians, Aram, Ephraim, and Israel? Well, it helps here to have some of that historical background from 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28, where we learn that instead of receiving the sign of Emmanuel as a promise of God's presence and protection, instead of trusting in the promise of the Lord, the God of Israel, Ahaz turned to the king of Assyria for help. 2 Kings 16, 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord. And your minds ought to be going, "Uh uh-oh. He robbed God in order to try and pay for another savior. And in the treasures of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria. So Ahaz took stock of his options. On the one hand, he could entrust himself to the Lord, whom he could not see, but who had given him the sign... On the other hand, he could entrust himself to the king of Assyria, whom he could see, but who wanted to kill him. And he chose the latter option. And as always happens when we seek a substitute savior, his plan failed miserably. Not only did the king of Assyria fail to protect Judah from invasion and destruction, but the king of Assyria ultimately turned on Ahaz and devoured him. 2 Chronicles 28, 19. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So the rest of Isaiah 7 predicts this affliction at the hands of the king of Assyria. Verses 18 to 25 is a prophecy of judgment uh, comprised of four distinct oracles. You can, you can kind of trace them through the text. They're all marked off by that phrase, in that day, in that day, in that day, in that day. The first comes in verses 18 and 19. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. Right, so the Assyrians are going to come upon Judah like a swarm of insects. And they will occupy the land that has been devastated by the war with the Syro-Ephraimites. Verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, that is the Euphrates, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. This is an image of shame and humiliation, which... The Assyrians will bring upon the people of Judah. Shaving the head and the beard was a common practice uh, imposed upon war prisoners. 21 and 22. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. 
And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. I think that this, these verses point to the effects of the Syro-Ephraimite war and the subsequent invasion of the Assyrians. First, you see that agriculture has all but ceased in the land. Judah will become a nomadic society. They eat curds and honey, not grapes and figs, not the produce of the land. Now, this could be the result of the drastic depopulation of Judah after the war. It could be because the Assyrians would periodically come in and destroy their fields in order to keep them mired in poverty. Speaking of poverty, you notice how small the herd is. It's just a young cow and two sheep, which points to the fact that these people are left with nothing. No land, no crops, no produce, just a young cow and two sheep and the curds and honey that they produce. Finally, verse 23, in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bows and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. Catching a pattern here? But they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. This once again points to the poverty and destruction and devastation of the aftermath of war and of invasion. No longer able to produce crops, the people of Judah are relegated to this nomadic, hunter-gatherer, subsistence lifestyle. And why, why, why has all of this devastation come upon the people of God? Verse 9, it's because of the unbelief of Ahaz. Trust me, says the Lord God of Israel, and I will deliver you from your enemies. And instead of trusting the Lord, Ahaz raids the temple treasury and tries to go buy salvation from the devil himself, from the king of Assyria. In other words, verses 18 to 25 is an extraordinary picture of sin and its consequences. Now, the events of Isaiah 7 would be just another blip on the radar of Israelite history were it not for the fact that Matthew reaches back 700 years takes Isaiah 7.14 and applies it to the birth of Jesus. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And just like that, the prophecy of Isaiah concerning the impending marriage and pregnancy of a young maiden girl 
resulting in the birth of a son who would stand as a sign of God's promise of deliverance from the Syro-Ephraimite armies. Just like that takes on a significance far beyond the 8th century BC and the, the geopolitical maneuverings of the ancient Near East. The words which the Lord put into Isaiah's mouth in 735 BC come to have eternal, global, cosmic, salvific significance. And they become nothing less than the promise of the Messiah, the Savior, not just of Judah, but of the world. So I want to close this morning by jumping from Isaiah 7 to Matthew chapter 1. And I want to make four points from Matthew's use of Isaiah's prophecy. Number one, whereas I don't think Isaiah spoke of a literal virgin birth in his own day, and I don't think that's the way Ahaz understood it either, it is clear that Matthew intends us to understand the birth of Jesus, the true Emmanuel, as a truly virginal miraculous conception. Three times in eight verses, Matthew emphasizes Mary's virginity. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And verse 25, Joseph took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. The virgin conception of Christ is a vital component of the gospel message. You cannot have the gospel without it. Why? Because it explains the true humanity and the true deity of this child who is at one and the same time the son of Mary and the son of God. Second, and following closely upon that point, note that the result of the virgin conception of Christ is not a birth merely. It's an incarnation. An incarnation, which is also a vital component of the gospel message. Matthew clearly states that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Luke, in his record of the angelic announcement to Mary, gives the angel's response to Mary's question when she says, how can this be since I've never known a man? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, for that reason, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The incarnation, literally the enfleshing of God, is central to our salvation. Were Jesus not fully man, he would not be a fit substitute for man in his life and his death. On the other hand, were Jesus not fully divine and free from the stain of original sin, he could not be a fit substitute for sinful men nor the innumerable multitude of sinful men whom he came to represent by his life and death. It is because of the virgin conception 
and the incarnation that resulted from it, that Jesus can truly be Emmanuel, God with us. The boy in the 8th century in Isaiah's day was not really God with us. He was a sign that God is with us. Jesus is no sign. He's the real deal. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Third, note that the crisis from which the true child Emmanuel has come to deliver us is not the impending invasion of a foreign army, but the impending judgment of an angry God. Matthew one twenty one. you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here's how you should picture this. There is an invading force encamped just across the border. Terrible and strong. And they are coming to execute God's just wrath upon the earth. And there will be no escape for sinners. But here comes Emmanuel. Who upon the cross steps between his people and the righteous wrath of God. And by his death, by bearing our sins, by absorbing God's wrath in our place... He saves us so that we may enjoy the blessing of everlasting life in his kingdom of peace. Finally, note that just as Emmanuel of the Emmanuel of Isaiah 7:14 functioned as a double sign, a sign of salvation and judgment, even so does the Emmanuel of Matthew 1:22 stand as a double sign of salvation and judgment. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2 when, when Jesus was presented in the temple on the eighth day after his birth? And there was in the temple a, a righteous and devout man by the name of Simeon who was waiting night and day in the temple, awaiting the consolation of Israel. He was awaiting the Messiah of God. And the Holy Spirit had, had told him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah. So when Simeon saw Mary and Joseph bringing this child into the temple, the Holy Spirit came upon him and he spoke to Mary saying, Behold, note this, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. For a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This child of Matthew 1, this Emmanuel, this Jesus, is the dividing line of history. You will either fall by him, or you will rise by him. He is the Lord's final sign of salvation and judgment. Indeed, he is the instrument of the Lord's salvation and judgment. So if you, unlike Ahaz will embrace him as the Lord's salvation, trust in him as the Lord's Emmanuel, you will rise with him. But if, like Ahaz, you reject him as the Lord's sign of salvation and judgment, and you try 
to buy salvation from some other source. You entrust yourself to some other savior, either your own perceived goodness or or your resume of religious works, whatever it may be, you will fall before him in judgment. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, who saves his people from their sins. And God will deliver you from the coming wrath through this Emmanuel if you will trust him. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is the object of all saving faith. So today, the word of the Lord to you is, calm down, be quiet, do not fear, and let not your heart be faint. Look upon Emmanuel, this virgin-born Savior of sinners, who will deliver you from sin and death and hell, who will deliver you from the world, the flesh, and the devil, if you will trust him. God wants, above all else, to be believed. So don't try to save yourself. Don't try to look for other saviors. That only leads to devastation and destruction. Trust Emmanuel. Trust Christ and see the salvation of your God. But on the other hand, if you do not stand firm in faith in Christ, you will not stand at all.